Good evening. Let's pause and pray as we look to Ephesians chapter 6 tonight. God, we are thankful for, again, your faithfulness in our lives. Lord, we are thankful for the fact that you are a God who not only sees but hears and cares about the things in our lives, that your desire for us, Lord, is good, that your plans for us are filled with hope and and a future. Lord, may we take hold of that awareness and may it steer our hearts and our thoughts tonight as we look at your words. Give us insight, encourage, instruct us, and help us, Lord, to take the things that are here and see them take place in our own lives. We do ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we are in Ephesians chapter 6, we're coming to the end of the book, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 and talk about both children briefly, and then we're also going to talk about a a probably more difficult subject, that of slaves and masters, and and tackle that. But let's read chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for that is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Paul is helping the readers figure out what the will of God is. That that was one of his points in chapter 5, verse 17. Remember, he told them, that therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will, Lord's will is for us. And so his writing is to help us get insight into what God's will is for us, that we wouldn't be foolish, that we would start recognizing what does God want for us. And he's starting to deal with some real practical things. Last week, he, he dealt with some real practical things just with husbands and wives. And before we go on, I do want to give a shout out. My stepbrother in Texas has been listening to our podcast and he says that his son, my nephew Luke, likes to listen to them. And so when he wakes up in the morning, he doesn't want to watch cartoons. He wants to hear Uncle Sam. And so a shout out to Luke. If you're listening, buddy, keep listening. Glad you're out there. And as as Paul is trying to give us practical things to husbands and wives, He's also giving practical things to the world that he's living. He provides them with this 
general idea of God's will, but leaves it to them to work out specifics. And I think that is so important that we understand where God is moving, but we don't have to be so micromanaging to figure out every little detail. And that's especially important for me being in a role of a pastor. It's not my job to micromanage your lives. I don't need to tell you everything you're supposed to do. I want to give you a a clear view of who God is and the direction that God is moving. And then you need to hear from God and you need to move in that direction. It's important that there is that clarity that it's your relationship with God. God is working in your heart, working in your life. And you move in obedience to what you know about God. And the place to begin... And understanding God's will is the place where it's most difficult, and that's our homes. It's at home that we encounter the most struggle. It's where we are real. It's the place where we have to deal most with ourselves as well as with the people we encounter on a regular basis. It's easy to get together and be real cordial. I see you once, twice a week, and it's, hey, how's it going? A few hours, and that's it. Even close friends, you might spend a little bit more time, but when you go home, you're there all the time. And now you have to interact, you know, while cooking or while cleaning. I'm just naming all the things my wife does. Let me think of something I do. You know, it has to be in that interaction where you're doing the mundane things. And sometimes that can be a little toxic. It can be a little wearisome. And so that's where Paul is helping us to understand our character towards God. And remember, just kind of a historical background. In the New Testament, when Paul is writing, the idea of household refers to more than an immediate family. The household includes the people who are stewards there, the people who are managing the household affairs, other servants. It's everyone who is in that roof. And we need to remove ourselves from our Western, you know, father knows best mindset and put ourselves at the time when Paul is writing because it's not the same thing. Even as we touched on last week, you know, The wives were working. They were usually slaves there in the household of whoever the master was. Remember, over 90% of the people that were living in that area were slaves. That's the world that he is writing to. That's the world that they find themselves in. And so it could include all these people, the household. He's trying to get them to understand how to live as a follower of Christ where you are at. And I think there's some things that will be easily applied to our lives as well. And we need to tackle some of these things to understand why it's being written the way it is and what's important. It's also important to note that Paul's underlining optimism is this is how the ideal Christian household functions. This is what it is when you follow Christ, how you interact with your husband, how you interact with your wife, how you interact with your children, how you interact with those who are over you or those who are under you. This is how we as followers of Christ are supposed to conduct ourselves 
And so he talks in all these areas about the strong, whether it's husbands, whether it's masters, whether it's parents, how they are to protect and provide for the weak. The weak could be the children. It could be the stewards, the servants. That there is supposed to be a care for those who are weaker. Real life is pretty complicated. It would be nice if it was simple. And the outlines that he given here, you know, sometimes it can be um, a little bit twisted. Real life has the idea of just being difficult. And the dynamic relationships that we live in challenge us in a lot of ways. The interaction of many families are often dysfunctional because of things that have happened to us or things that we are involved in. And an obvious weakness, there is an obvious weakness of endorsing any kind of hierarchy, just openly, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the church, there is the potential for abuse. And so anytime you say, okay, you have to listen to these people who are over you, there is the possibility of abuse taking place. It's that saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And really, more truthfully, is absolute power reveals absolutely. Because it doesn't have to corrupt. Jesus had all power and he remained a servant. And that's the idea that Paul is pushing forward. Absolute power should reveal absolute servanthood. If you have authority then you have the opportunity to act like Jesus. You have the power to serve. And so that's where he is pushing us. You know, authoritarian structures that are inflexible are usually used for oppression and used for violence. Whenever there is that kind of authority, it goes to people's heads. Maybe you've worked in situations like that. Have you ever worked for someone who is a manager or, uh, you know, a boss in some form and they take that authority and it goes to their head and they start bossing you about everything? They want to, again, micromanage every little thing you do, and it's almost like their job is to make themselves feel important. I remember going to a tire store. I forget which one, like Big O Tires or something. And I went there, you know, trying to get a, a tire fixed. And I'm looking, and everyone had a badge that said assistant manager. Everyone. I'm like, you're all assistant managers. Is there a manager here? What's with the title? And it's almost like we all have to be, you know, seen as something. But somewhere there's got to be someone who's actually the manager, not just the assistant managers. But again, so many times that becomes pro problematic because whoever has more authority can use that authority. And again, at this time, roughly 90% of the population in the Roman Empire were subject to this kind of exploitation, to this kind of domineering attitude. 90% of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves in some form or another. Jesus was born as a slave under the Roman Empire. I think we forget that many times as far as his position. But we know that he was anything but enslaved. And that's important. 
because that's part of what Paul is helping us to understand. Your position doesn't determine who you are. And and so we need to keep in mind that Paul covers the rule and not the exception. He's talking about these things in a way that helps us to see where he was at at the time or the people he's talking to at the time and how they were to conduct themselves. And if 90% of the people were enslaved in some way and still were able to change the world that they lived in, how much more so can we with our freedoms? We worry about so many things and we'll go into that a little bit more later because we think of our rights And when someone takes away one of our rights, whether it be a freedom of speech or the right to bear arms, we panic, we freak out. And I want you to remember that when Paul was writing this, they had so much less than we have and they changed the government with nothing. How did they do that? Did they demand their rights? Or did they change the hearts of the people? And that's where Paul is focusing. And so he starts off, children, obey your parents. Now, doesn't that sound simple? I mean, I wish it was that simple. Son, take out the trash. Well, why? Because the Bible says, children, obey your parents. Okay, it does. In that case, right? On the other hand, you know, God is always seen as a God of order. He is discerned in creation from Genesis 1 where he created the heavens and the earth. There was the light, there was the darkness, there was the land, there was the water. There was these clear boundaries that were set. There was order, there was organization. There were the things that were put in place so that there could be control. In Psalm 19, it talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God. The Proverbs chapter 8 talks about how wisdom cries out and how it gives instruction. And God's division of light and darkness, seas, land, it's clear boundaries. He reconciled these opposites and gave them their own time, their own place. He, he organizes diverse elements and activities so that life on earth can be self-sustaining. God is a God who is a God of order, and he's put these things to work together. In the Hebrew scriptures, wisdom consists of bringing this order into daily living. And so how can you put your life into order? And so the laws were given to bring structure to living so that your life could be in order, following after God. And naturally, this includes ordering in the family's home life. How can there be order in this family's life? We could imagine, you know, the well-ordered family operating, you know, with this kind of efficiency, that there is structure, there is leadership, there is submission to the good of the family, like we talked about last week. It's not just for yourself, it's for the good of everyone. He says also, in the Lord, obey your parents in the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Again, he's bringing this idea of why we do it. It's consistent with the whole section. It provides context for the child's obedience. We, we live in a certain ways because we are in the Lord and live to him. 
We, we don't just obey the parents because we do it in the Lord. We, we do it for this reason. We do it because of who we are as much as we're doing it because of who they are. We're, we're doing it in this context. In Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8, it says, For none of us lives for ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And so there first has to be an understanding of your identity. Who you are is at the center of what Paul is talking about in the structure of family. If I am in the Lord, then my service is always to the Lord, no matter who it is. You know, Jesus gave these examples. You know, don't be like those who lord over you. Instead, whoever wants to be great in the kingdom of heaven must be the servant of all. That's who you are in the Lord. And so from who you are comes what you do. And as a child or as a parent or as a husband, or as a wife, it is your relationship with God that determines how you act towards others. And the idea of submission is not one of less than, it's one of ability to actually influence in a very dynamic way, in a way that is very similar to Jesus himself. And when he says, for this is right, it's the idea of this is righteous. And it's in a relational rather than a moral way. This is the righteous thing to do in a relational standing. I imagine Saturday in our Connect time, the idea of how we deal with each other in relationships, this is something that will come up. You see, a relationship with anybody, whether it's a husband, whether it's a wife, whether it's a friend, whether it's a kid, whether it's a parent, If that relationship is built on your ability to control it, it will struggle and it will have serious consequences. Every relationship should be about how to encourage, how to strengthen, how to build up the other person. Why? Because that's who you are in the Lord. That is your and my purpose in the Lord is to strengthen one another, to help one another, to encourage one another. And where is that the hardest? In our home. Because at home, we tend to want to become selfish. I'm a lot more demanding at home than I am here with you guys. Uh, And I don't even notice it. Until my wife makes me aware of it. You know, she lets me know when I'm acting like an idiot. And it's good that she does. But it happens a lot more at home than it does with other people. Why? Because at home, I'm more comfortable. At home, I'm more who I really am. And that's where Paul is targeting, is where it's difficult, where it's hard. And, and so... That's where he's pushing us to, to do what's right, what's righteous in relationship, doing what is appropriate within that relationship. He says about honoring their parents. Some of us have to mature into this. Parents do not have to earn this from children. However, I do think it's 
impossible for parents to forfeit it. The idea is children are supposed to honor their parents. That's the position. That's the relationship. But parents, by their conduct, can forfeit the right of that honor. And that's a problem that Paul's dealing with as well. He says the idea of a promise. This is a reward is given with promise. And perhaps Paul thought that children needed some sort of incentive. You know, the idea of you will have a long life. Hey, you guys, there's benefits to you. You know, if you, if you honor your parents, you'll live along, you'll live more of a peaceful life. And so he, he's trying to push them to do what's right and encourage them that it's good for them as well. In verse four, he says, fathers do not exasperate or provoke your children. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction in the Lord. Boy, how many ways can parents push too hard, too far? How many ways can we as parents, and it's interesting that it's to fathers, exasperate our children? I think of my kids. I think of the ways that I exasperated them. I think of the demands that I put on them. And what happens many times is we are so concerned with controlling our children and telling them what to do that we never really listen to them. That they don't have a voice. And what we want is them to obey us. We want them to do what we want. And it could be good things, but then they have questions. They have voices. And we're like, hey, just do what I say. I don't need to talk to you about it. I just want you to do what I tell you. I I think when our kids were in church and the times that, you know, we would get uh, reports back, your kids were, you know, causing problems, you know, in children's ministry. And we would, you know, talk to our kids and, hey, you better stop this. You better stop. And then they would come and they would tell us, well, you know, the leaders are doing this and they're playing favorites here and they're all about this and we would just not want to hear them out. And we'd say, you're just the kids. Hey, stop it. And we would squash their voice. And as time would go by, I look back and I could say, you know what they were saying had a lot of truth in it. They were seeing things clear because they had this good, how should I put it? this good meter to read what was legit or what wasn't. I was going to call it something else, but I'll just call it this. You know, it was an accurate meter of being able to tell what was genuine and what was false. And they would see some of these leaders acting a certain way, but they saw the intention behind it. And they would tell us about it, but we didn't really want to listen to them. We just wanted them to not cause us any more trouble. So instead of hearing them and trying to work with them in that situation, a lot of times I would just squash their voice. And I think we need to be careful. You know, Paul says in a parallel passage in Colossians 3.21 that they will, we are to train them so that they will not lose heart. And I think that's the big deal, is don't, be so heavy-handed on them that they actually lose heart and lose their voice. The idea of training them is to encourage them, is to, to build them up, is to help them hear God's voice and be able to instruct them how to live. But just as I was telling you at the beginning, it's not my job to micromanage and control everything. As a parent, it's similar. 
yeah, I have to be maybe more hands-on, more instructive, but really my job is to help them hear from God and let them grow in those areas, which means let them make mistakes. When I'm doing dog training and, you know, say we're dealing with potty training, you know, my puppy always goes to the bathroom. How do I stop them from going to the bathroom in the house? Well, first you have to let them go in the house and correct them when they go. Well, I don't want them to go in the house, so I'm going to just keep them outside. Then they will never learn not to go in the house. You can't correct what you can't catch. And I think the same thing is true with children. We have to allow them to fall and make mistakes so that they can learn. I think if I would have understood that more sooner, it probably would have been better for them. Instead, I tried to stop every mistake. I cut everything off. You're not going to go on a date until you're old and gray. You're not going to do something. You know, I just wanted to control these things because I didn't want a problem to happen. Instead, if I might have let them have a few more bumps and bruises, it probably would have done them better later on. It's kind of funny because our oldest ones, we probably were more controlling and demanding with them And they, in turn, became more like, I don't want to be controlled. I don't want to be held at. And then, you know, the middle son syndrome, you know, we we kind of forgot about him. Where's he? You know, I don't know. We're we're so busy worrying about the others. He had less supervision and did fine. Maybe we can be too controlling. And, And so parents, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction in the Lord. Help them to hear from God. Help them to walk in that relationship with God. And then he goes on in verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Paul isn't endorsing slavery here, but he doesn't oppose it either. So did Paul believe that slavery was a good thing? And what are we supposed to make of this. And the answer is that Paul could no more imagine a world without slavery than we can imagine a world without electricity. It was how things were and how things had been since before he was born. That's how life was. Can you imagine life without electricity? We panic when it goes off for an hour or two, right? If the electricity goes out for two hours, we're like, what do we do? Don't open the refrigerator, otherwise it'll get cold. The air conditioner's not on. Oh, let's check the news. Oh, we can't. There's no TV. There's no electricity. You know, we have cell phones now, so we can kind of bypass that. But you, you get cut off, and it's just become our norm. We take for granted that lights are on here. We take it for granted. There's sound, you know, with the sound system. We, we just assume those things are there. And we can't imagine really life without those things. It was just something that was. See, many slaves were valued, were respected, and trusted family members. They were part of a household. There were people who were slaves by choice. A bond servant was some who said, I want to be a part of this household in this role because it brought stability to their life. They were given trust over the family money, 
household, the flocks, the, the crops. They were given positions that were very important. And many were used and abused in every way imaginable as well. So you have these extremes going on. You had people who were, you know, treated like family and you had people who were abused and used like property. Just as we know has happened throughout history. And in a world where many Christians were slaves working for non-Christian people, it was worse than useless to suggest the idea of instant emancipation. It just was not going to be happening. It was not going to be productive. And history shows that it was actually this stance that led to the change in the structure of the Roman Empire. It wasn't that they wanted emancipation. It's that they actually started converting all the people who weren't Christian. And now you're having to deal with a person who you call a slave, but he's also your brother. And Paul writes to Philemon and talks about that. Here you've got a person who's a slave, but you need to treat him like your brother. That changes everything. That changes the whole dynamic. And so recognize that as slaves and children were to be obedient and that it was, that wasn't just the end of it. Paul, you know, at that time, that's how it was. If you're a slave, if you're a child, you just have to be obedient or you'll be punished. Now Paul insists on mutual responsibility. This is very different. And Paul could not even go here if it wasn't for an understanding of Jesus in their lives. That's who Paul is writing to. He's writing to the slaves who believe in Jesus. He's writing to the masters who believes in Jesus. And he's saying, now you have responsibility to your children. Now you have responsibility to your slaves. Now you as children have responsibilities to your parents. Why? In the Lord. Now you slaves have responsibility to your masters in the Lord. And simply note that Paul's concern was their immediate circumstances. It wasn't, well, someday we're going to be free and, you know, yeah, in the kingdom there is going to be no more slave nor free. Paul talks about that attitude now. His instructions were relevant for his readers. There, There is to be here that usefulness for us to recognize. There is much here that we can see outside of just this master-slave system because really it's a character that Paul is trying to get to. And so he says, you earthly masters, recognition of a a specific situation. You're supposed to obey your earthly masters. Here is a person in a specific situation for a specific time. And he gives a number of ways that we're supposed to do this or they're supposed to do this. Respect and fear. Some translations will say fear and trembling. And that's a figure of speech that indicates being seriously concerned. Take it seriously when they ask something of you. Don't just put it off. Sincerity is another one or singleness of heart, wholehearted commitment. Tells them not with eye service or as men pleasers. And we know all about that. That's the person who grabs the broom and sweeps whenever the boss shows up. 
And then the boss leaves and they put the broom down. You know, people like that. I remember when I was uh, overseeing a shop, I was managing the shop. One of the owner's nephews worked at the shop. And the guy was just, uh, he would come in late. He would come in hungover. And he'd go and fall asleep on the job. You'd go looking for him from the job and he'd be crashed out. How long has he been sleeping? Oh, for hours. He hasn't gotten anything done. And then you go in and talk to him and his uncle. And he's like, oh, Tio, man, I'm working so hard for you, Tio, man. I'm really just trying to get the job done. And this guy's giving me a hard time. And I'm like, ah, just making me crazy. It's like he pulled the uncle card on me. You know, it's like, okay, whatever. We're not supposed to be like that. Just men pleasers. But he says, as slaves of Christ... And again, notice the similarity that he talked with husbands and wives. You do this as unto the Lord. The same thing is happening here. Slaves of Christ, a perspective that transcends their masters, doing the will of God. This could definitely create tension for the slaves. Because now, you know, you're asked to do this, doing the will of God. And So how is what a master commands the will of God? Because that's really kind of where we want to go question-wise, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So they're supposed to serve with sincerity heart, good thoughts, well-intentioned, as you would obey Christ, an orientation that preserves our stability, our integrity a position that holds us responsible to a higher power, not just this person. We are doing this as unto the Lord. We are doing it because what we want is to represent God well, not just to be submissive, but to be a person who has character. And that's what we saw in Daniel. Remember, Daniel didn't corrupt himself with the the king's food, but he also was a person of character. He would open his window and pray towards Jerusalem three times a day. Why? Because he, he was devout to his God, but it was his devotion to God that helped elevate him to a person that he could trust. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar would want to know what his dreams were about, he would call all his sorcerers and they would tell him all kinds of things and they would just try and make things up. But Daniel would actually go to the Lord, hear from God and be honest. And so his devotion to God actually enhanced his relationship with the king. See, knowing promotes the slave's willingness to serve their master well. They will be well rewarded by God even if they're mistreated by the master. Knowing proceeds, or at least is linked to the doing. John thirteen seventeen says, Now you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so the perspective is, you serve Christ above this person. If this person mistreats you, they will answer to God, but you always answer to Christ. And so you always conduct yourself well, even if that person doesn't deserve it. Now, 
you might think that's terrible, that's wrong. But really, if we start looking at our history and we see in our own country, the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King Jr., it was a peaceful demonstration that moved at the hearts of people that changed the laws. It didn't start with violence. It started with a nonviolent movement. We look at Gandhi and what he did in India, the same thing. It wasn't a violent demonstration. It was actually a peaceful demonstration that gained respect from people and changed the posture of the people around them. It is what's been effective, most effective in history because if you change the heart, you change the person. If you try and force a person to change, usually you're going to be met with opposition. And so that's what Paul is really asking for us here is to deal with that as we would the Lord. And in verse 9, he, he changes and he says, Masters, the same word masters is the word that we would use for Lord. We, we need to be aware of our position, your power position, and how we use them. For example, with those who serve us at a restaurant or those who would serve us on an airplane or at a store, how do you treat them? It's one of my pet peeves. I can remember sitting with pastors in a restaurant and them just being so demanding and so expecting. This poor waitress is trying to help out. And they, hey, you know, can we get some service over here? It's like, dude, you're not treating that waitress like you would Christ. Who do you think you are? Because you're not acting like Jesus right now. And so the idea of a person who is over or master needs to recognize the same thing, that they have to treat the slaves in the same way. What same way? Same way that the slave is treating you as Christ. Remember, we need to be aware of that. He understood that authority. And the whole idea is the slave is supposed to treat that person as Christ, whether they are master or whoever they are, and they're to deal with those things as Christ would deal with them. If we dealt with every relationship that way, gosh, how would it affect us? And Paul clearly understood that his authority was not for tearing people down. It was actually for building them up. In 2 Corinthians 13.10, he says, This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Any authority that you have is so that you can build others up, not use them for your gain or tear them down. And when tell... When Paul tells masters in the same way, that is, just as the slaves. And so I'm assuming he means that they are to treat their slaves as Christ would, as to the Lord. Imagine that. Treat your slave as you would Christ or as Christ would treat them. That changes everything. That changes everything. And people who have a relationship with God know that this is at the heart of who they're supposed to be because we have the example of Christ who washed the feet of the disciples. And so 
is very similar to that of husbands and wives' relationship. Treat them as you would Christ and act towards them as you would towards Christ. Okay, it's supposed to be that idea of I'm going to give to you as I would Christ and I'm going to receive from you as if you were Christ and give up threatening. He goes on and he tells them, do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Threatening is just a terrible way to try and get things done. Okay, threatening relationships, the fear is not the healthiest way to motivate people. And unfortunately, parents do that a lot with kids. But it's not the best way of motivating others. Again, Gandhi wrote, power based on love is a thousand times more effective and permanent than the one derived from fear of punishment. Powerful truth. Powerful, and that's exactly what we see in the example of Christ. Knowing is the point where the slaves and masters come together. The slaves know something about their service. Masters need to know something about their master, and they share that in common. Christ is our common bond. Their heavenly Lord doesn't recognize the difference between slaves and masters. In his eyes, there is no special status ascribed to race, class, or gender. And what powerful words when he says, there is no favoritism with him. That is revolutionary, especially at the time when people owned other people. And they say, well, there's no favoritism with God, so you better think about that. Think about how you treat that person who belongs to the God you serve. And so now we see it starts to disrupt the whole status quo and it starts to bring this equality based on the idea of we belong to Christ. We are this new humanity in Christ, which is Paul's point in and throughout this epistle, that we belong to him. And so, kind of in concluding, as I mentioned earlier, how is doing God's will, how is obeying a master doing God's will? Doing God's will, I think, is a a key to interpreting this whole section that we're looking at. You know, uh, my early years as a follower of Christ, I kind of learned that God's will was something that was foreign to me. It was unrecognizable because I was a sinner and God's will was not mine. It was difficult, if not impossible. Usually it was unpleasant. It usually entailed entailed some kind of suffering. It was never what I would have wanted to choose for myself. That was my mindset of what God's will was. Something foreign, something that I didn't want to do, something that would be difficult to do. And I think I'm still unlearning that distorted perception and discovering what God's will is. Because... What God's will is, is the best and most rewarding life I could hope to live. What God's will is, is often wonderful. It's often joy unspeakable. What God's will is fulfilling because it's what I was created to be and to do, even as he said in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. And so God's will is anything but constraining and burdensome. What God's will is, is actually liberating and fulfilling. And if we see that, then you see, 
I'm looking past my circumstances. I'm looking past the things that are there. Jesus taught us to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the petition in the Lord's Prayer that God's will be done has nothing to do with a, a fatalism that surrenders to a superior and impersonal fate. The one who prays knows to whom he yields and can yield, namely, that he is the one who will do more than I could ask or think. That he is the one who can work all things out for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You see, God's will be done is entrusting my life to one who is better, stronger, and wanting to work for my benefit. If God is for you, who can be against you? Now we know Romans says that. So let me ask you, if God is for you, who can be against you? ISIS? The government, whichever side you're on, the judges, the courts, the politicians. If God is for you, who's against you? You see, we have brought into this idea of freedom, this fear of getting it taken away. And we're thinking that men actually hold our freedom instead of God. We start living a life that is based on the people around us instead of on the God that we serve. And so the will of God is recognizing who it is that we actually serve and the things that he has actually said to us. It's holding on to those things in spite of where we live. I've got to tell you that revolution takes place Christian revolution takes place in the hearts, not in the poles. And when we start focusing on the wrong thing, we start losing the right thing. And we start forfeiting the voice of God because we want to hear our voice. And Paul is challenging us Instead of trying to, to dodge the suffering or worry about what things are going to happen around, we recognize that everything can become means by God's working his will in our lives. Think about Joseph and Mary, how God worked in their lives. She was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The child is in her. And then there's a census. And they're driven out of their home to go back to Bethlehem. They should have protested. How dare you send us back to Bethlehem? Don't you understand? We're pregnant. Don't take our rights away. But they didn't realize that God was working even in that corrupt Roman government to accomplish his will, that they couldn't thwart things that God was doing because God is so much greater and their freedoms that seemed like they were being infringed and the sufferings that they were having to endure, all those miles traveling, pregnant, ready to give birth on a donkey, how difficult would that be? How awful is that? But they didn't realize that God was moving all the universe to accomplish his will through them. 
They didn't realize that God was for them, not against them. That God was working and that they needed to trust what God was doing in the areas where they couldn't change it because God was doing something powerful. If we would greet every situation as an opportunity for God to work in us, no moment is trivial. No moment is just a coincidence. No moment is without heaven trying to do something within us. Trusting God for all things makes the present moment an experience that's sacred. Because right now I can trust God, no matter what is happening, that he is working for my benefit because I am in him. I am his child. And so whatever this master is doing, I serve a greater master. And whatever he does to me, I have the trust that God is going to work things for my benefit. He is not able to stop the hand of God from working what is beneficial in my life. But we have to get out of our mind what's beneficial is what's comfortable. What's beneficial is what's easy for me. What's beneficial is what makes me more successful. So many times the will of God is connected to comfort. The will of God is connected to me going up a grade. The will of God is for me getting a new job, getting new money. The will of God never seems to be, yes, I've got a new job and I'm making less money. Praise God, right? We don't say that. But what if that's the will of God for you? What if God is wanting to work in your life and he has to take you somewhere else? Maybe you don't see it right now and maybe we don't understand it. And I can keep trying and working, but God, I have to trust, is going to take whatever circumstance I am in and work in my behalf. I'm working, but God is also working. God entrusts me, but I ultimately trust him. Should my goal be to make life easier? Or do I prefer that I make my life better? What if making my life better actually is more difficult? What if actually making my character stronger means me giving up some of those things that make my life easier? But we don't like to think that way. And let's face it, we're a little spoiled. You know, our our air conditioner works up until about three o'clock, about four o'clock. And then it stops working because it's old and it gets too hot and so the compressor turns off. It'll go back on probably about nine o'clock or something. It'll, It'll kick back on. And it's amazing how we get so used to that comfort. You know, especially on days like today, right, or yesterday when it's so hot, we just expect the air conditioning. When I'm in Haiti, most of those houses don't have air conditioning. And we don't see them complaining. I don't think I've ever heard anyone in Haiti complain about the weather, even when it's more humid, even when things are more difficult. When we went to Jeannot's home, he didn't have air conditioning. He had some house fans there. But man, we'd be like, man, it's humid. Man, it's sweating here. No complaining. We're so used to things that when they don't go that way, why is God punishing us? And it's connected to our comfort, not our character. 
And so we need to think about the will of God as being what makes us better servants, what makes us better human beings, not what makes us more comfortable. And so I'm trying to learn how to allow my frustrations and the things that annoy me and the pain that comes into my life, I'm trying to see those as triggers to surrender. So that when I have a a moment of being irked about something, something on the news, some circumstance in my life, instead of getting angry, I'm thinking about how do I see God working in my life in this situation? How can I be a servant of God right here and right now with what's going on? Because hardships tell us that God is near even if it feels like he's abandoned us. Trusting God for all things makes the present moment a sacred moment. And we need to learn these things, not to allow negative emotions to just close us and shut us off. Imagine if you had a clock, a digital watch, and every time you looked at it, it said now. And then... That was your opportunity to see God working in your life now. Constantly calling us back to an awareness of God's presence now. This is what we believe in our core relationship. That's what's supposed to be at the core of how we interact with our family, with our friends, with the people who are over us, with the people who are under us. And it's what we have in our hardships and troubles, the Lord who is with us always, even to the end of the age. The Lord is with us always. And so I don't have to fear what man may do to me. If God is for me, who can be against me? He's able to work all things out for the good. Why? Because I belong to him. And I need to show the grace that he gives to me to everyone who's below me as well as who's over me. And that's how we change the world. Let's pray. Lord, it's a difficult thing to look at the idea of slavery and see it as an opportunity for you to work and reveal yourself, but that's exactly what you have done. And Lord, I pray that we would take that attitude and apply it in our lives today. Lord, that we would see those who are over us or or those who are in positions that might be controlling and look at ways that we can love them as you do. That we would see the people who are below us, the people who we have maybe Uh, power or control over and we would see them as you do and treat them the way you do lord that we would change the influence of relationships around us by acting like you do in them no matter what that relationship is whether it's a husband a wife a father a child a boss or a person who works for somebody. Lord, we have you at the core of our lives and you shape every inch of our lives. And so may we see these circumstances that come 
into our lives as opportunities to see you work in us. Opportunities for you to shape our character. Opportunities for you to accomplish your will in us. And God, we thank you for being faithful to us. We thank you for the example you've given us. If you are our Lord and you wash our feet, how much more are we supposed to do that? We are not just to love those who love us. We are to love our enemies, to pray for those who would despitefully use us. Because when we do this, you show up, not only in our lives, but through our lives. And we pray you would in Jesus' name. Amen.